Welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration dash review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So without further ado, let's start the review. two cases this week, both issued on Friday, one from the Board of Immigration Appeals and one from the Fourth Circuit. And there's important stuff in both of them. But before the cases get started, I have a question for you all. I've received requests for transcripts of the episodes for use with, say, control find researching. But it's a bit expensive to make the transcripts, and they'd only be about 95% accurate. So before I do it, I'd like to gauge interest. Would you guys pay a nominal fee for these transcripts? Shoot me an email if you would at kgreg at kktplaw.com. That's K-G-R-E-G-G at kktplaw.com. If there's enough interest, we'll do it. Here are the cases. First is matter of HYZ, published by the BIA. This is a case about motions to reopen and frivolous asylum findings, and it's not good for non-citizens. Miss HYZ, an asylum seeker from China, hence the acronym, was denied asylum by an immigration judge. Not only did the IJ deem Miss HYZ not credible, but the IJ made a frivolous finding, meaning that the IJ, quote, determined that material elements of her claim were deliberately fabricated, end quote. A frivolous finding is a serious thing, as it bars a non-citizen from pretty much all benefits under immigration law, or, as the BIA says in this decision, it's a, quote, death sentence for an asylum seeker's hopes of securing permanent, lawful residence in the United States, end quote. Starting off with a bang. Ms. HYZ appealed to the BIA and then the Third Circuit, but lost both times. Miss HYZ was not physically removed from the U.S. and 14 years later, through a fourth attorney, filed a motion to reopen with the BIA to try to vacate the frivolous finding. The main reason for the motion, it appears, is that Miss HYZ's husband has a U visa petition pending, presumably because the husband was a victim of a crime. And his wife, Miss HYZ, would be eligible to become a derivative on that petition, but for the frivolous asylum finding. 
the BIA denied the motion to reopen. It first noted the long case law, stating that motions to reopen are disfavored and that movements have a, quote, heavy burden, end quote, to meet. The BIA then issued a fairly new standard that all practitioners should be aware of, so I'll quote it in full. Quote, There are three principal grounds on which an immigration judge or the board may deny a motion to reopen immigration proceedings. One, the movement has failed to establish a prima facie case for the relief sought. Two, the movement has failed to introduce previously unavailable material evidence that justified reopening. Or three, in cases in which the ultimate grant of relief being sought is discretionary, the board can pass by the first two bases for denial and determine that even if they were met, the movement would not be entitled to the discretionary grant of relief, end quote. And as many of you know, almost all grants of relief are discretionary. The BIA also noted, however, that not only can ineffective assistance of prior counsel constitute a basis to reopen a case, provided prejudice is shown, but ineffective assistance of counsel can also toll the 90-day deadline to file a motion to reopen under the right circumstances. The BIA also noted, of course, that it enjoys the authority to reopen proceedings on its own, known as sua sponte reopening. So here the BIA denied the motion for a bunch of reasons. First, it held that because a frivolous asylum finding becomes final once the asylum application is finally denied, either by the IJ or on appeal by the BIA, quote, the subsequent filing of a motion to reopen, even one that challenges a frivolous finding, has no effect on the statutory bar to immigration benefits, end quote. Accordingly, and quote, absent a showing of prejudice on account of ineffective assistance of counsel, or a showing that clearly undermines the validity and finality of the finding, it is inappropriate for the board to favorably exercise our discretion to reopen a case and vacate an immigration judge's frivolous finding, end quote. Because the frivolous finding could not be vacated, the BIA found Ms. HYZ was not prima facie eligible for the U visa underlying her motion to reopen, and so denied the motion. The BIA then went on to explain why it had declined to exercise its sua sponte authority. First, in a quick gut punch to practitioners, the BIA stated that equities in Ms. HYZ's case, namely her recent U visa eligibility, quote, acquired while she remained illegally in the United States after being ordered removed, generally do not constitute such truly exceptional circumstances as to warrant discretionary reopening, end quote. Next, the BIA rejected any ineffective assistance of counsel claims because, according to the BIA, Ms. HYZ didn't establish that any failure by prior counsel prejudiced her case such that there was a, quote, reasonable likelihood that the outcome of the respondent's proceedings would have been different, end quote. So, a decision clearly designed to make it more difficult for non-citizens to reopen their removal cases. Not much good for non-citizens here, but I do have one observation. For what it's worth, it appears that the BIA is recognizing in this case, based on a Third Circuit case that I'm not familiar with, that, quote, substantial compliance, end quote, with matter of Lazada will suffice in the Third Circuit to bring a claim based on ineffective assistance of counsel. Do the research yourself, Third Circuit practitioners, but this seems to be the case, and the BIA seems to be accepting that fact. And that is matter of HYZ.
Before we get to the next case, and as it's a pretty short week, I wanted to tell you all about a really cool group that I just learned about. The Student Clinic for Immigrant Justice, or SCIJ, is training undergraduate students to provide free legal representation to asylum seekers and to organize for immigrant justice. With programs at Worcester State University and Brown University, students go through an intensive semester-long training and then gain basic experience by volunteering with asylum clinics before they're then paired with immigration attorneys in their community to work on asylum cases from beginning to end. If you're interested in learning more, supporting their work, or having a student support your asylum work, you can visit scijimmigration.org. I think this organization is so cool that I plan to interview some of these exceptional students. So stay tuned for a future special episode and look out for it in the podcast feed. Moving to the Fourth Circuit, we have Wambura v. Barr, published on November 13, 2020. This is a case about burdens, particularly serious crimes, and corroboration. Mr. Wambura is a lawful permanent resident, or LPR, from Tanzania. He was charged with various crimes and ultimately pled guilty to conspiracy to commit wire fraud, aggravated identity theft, and conspiracy to commit wire and mail fraud. He was sentenced to five years in prison in order to pay restitution over $400,000. The IJ found that Mr. Wambura's crime was an aggravated felony, as defined at INA Section 101A43MI, a conviction involving fraud or deceit in which the loss to the victim exceeds $10,000. The IJ also found that Mr. Wambura was removable for having been convicted of two or more CIMTs, or crimes involving moral turpitude, not arising out of a single scheme. Both grounds of removability independently make Mr. Wambura removable. And, because the IJ found that the conviction was an aggravated felony, and the aggravated felony has a five-year imprisonment sentence, Mr. Wambura is barred from asylum and withholding of removal because the conviction is a per se particularly serious crime, meaning that Mr. Wambura was only potentially eligible for deferral of removal under the Convention Against Torture. As the basis for his cat deferral claim, Mr. Wambura presented testimony that he was a member of the opposition Chajima political party, and that he would be persecuted and tortured if returned to Tanzania due to his protest and blogging activities. Despite his extended time in the United States, Mr. Wambura believed that he would still be harmed if returned to Tanzania because, among other reasons, his father was being followed by secret police in Tanzania. The IJ asked if Mr. Wambura had corroborating evidence about all this, and, because he was detained, he said he didn't, because he couldn't access his email. The IJ denied cat protection for, among other things, Mr. Wambura's failure to corroborate his claims, noting that, quote, while Mr. Wambura indicated that his father told him he was being followed by the secret police, there was no letter from the father or information to corroborate Wambura's contentions, end quote. The BIA affirmed all of it. Before the Fourth Circuit, Mr. Wambura argued that the particularly serious crime finding was wrong, and that the IJ failed to give him proper notice that further corroboration was going to be required. Addressing the particularly serious crime aggravated felony issue first. Recall, 
an aggravated felony with a sentence of imprisonment of at least five years per se bars a non-citizen from everything except deferral of removal under the Convention Against Torture. Now, in Nijuan v. Holder, the Supreme Court said that when DHS seeks to remove someone based on INA Section 101A43MI, the aggravated felony fraud or deceit $10,000 amount, DHS has the burden to establish that the conviction both necessarily involved fraud or deceit and that the conviction resulted in a loss to a victim of at least $10,000. But in this case, according to the Fourth Circuit, the aggravated felony issue arose in the relief context, not removability. That is, even though the IJ actually did find that DHS had established that Mr. Wambura was removable because his conviction was an aggravated felony under INA Section 101A43MI, the IJ also held that Mr. Wambura was removable for having been convicted of two or more CIMTs, and you only need one ground to remove a non-citizen. So, according to the Fourth Circuit, whether the conviction was an aggravated felony was really only relevant to the question of relief, not to removability. The Fourth Circuit then asked, okay, assuming that a conviction, like Mr. Wambura's, indeed involves fraud or deceit, who has the burden to show that it also involves a loss to the victim of at least $10,000 when the analysis arises in the relief context? Relying on its 2011 decision in Salem v. Holder, the Fourth Circuit held that Mr. Wambura has the burden because, once removability is established, he has the ultimate burden to establish his eligibility for relief and protection from removal. Quote, Mr. Wambura had the burden to demonstrate by a preponderance of the evidence that he has not been convicted of an aggravated felony, end quote. And he failed to do so in this case, particularly as the restitution was ordered in an amount over $10,000, and he didn't have any evidence to disprove the fact that there was a loss over $10,000. Turning then to whether the IJ properly determined that Mr. Wambura had failed to corroborate his cat deferral claim, the Fourth Circuit deferred to the BIA's 2015 decision in matter of LAC, wherein the BIA held that where further corroboration is required by an IJ, quote, the applicant should be given an opportunity to explain why he could not obtain such evidence, and that explanation should be included in the record, as well as whether the explanation was sufficient, end quote. After that, the IJ then has discretion to grant or deny a continuance. But according to the Fourth Circuit, immigration law, quote, does not require an IJ to give an alien seeking relief from removal advance notice of specific corroborating evidence necessary to establish his claim or grant an automatic continuance to allow him to obtain such evidence, end quote. This holding is largely consistent with decisions out of the 2nd, 5th, 6th, 7th, and 8th circuits, but at odds with decisions out of the 3rd and 9th circuits. Those latter two courts have held, quote, where an IJ determines corroborative evidence is necessary, the statute requires notice of the need for the evidence and an opportunity for the petitioner to provide it before the IJ makes a final decision, end quote. So not looking so good for Mr. Wambura. However, the Fourth Circuit then agreed with Mr. Wambura that, quote, the IJ did not discuss whether the corroborating evidence she mentioned in her decision was reasonably available. End quote, as is required by the corroboration statute and matter of LAC. 
and because the record was a bit unclear as to whether Mr. Wambura had otherwise provided credible testimony on the issue, the Fourth Circuit remanded for a proper finding. A somewhat convoluted case, but such is immigration law. Here are a few more observations. First, Judge Harris concurred, but would not get into the matter of LAC issue because, importantly to Judge Harris, Mr. Wambura never requested more time to obtain corroborating evidence. Lucky for the circuit split gong, the majority did not follow Judge Harris. And finally, just a heads up. I believe the burden holding in this case may soon become moot because the Supreme Court has this term taken up the issue of who, DHS or the non-citizen, has the burden to prove whether an ambiguous criminal conviction bars the non-citizen from immigration relief. The Supreme Court might ultimately issue a narrow ruling that doesn't affect the Fourth Circuit decision in this case, but I imagine that whatever the Supreme Court says this term will at least be relevant to this decision. So keep your ears to the ground. And that is Wambura v. Barr. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official immigration review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet, at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.